for Sundays. And so if you would, stand and let's attune our hearts and posture ourselves to hear and receive from the Lord this morning. And I'll pray after that and we'll see what the Lord has for us. If you want to follow along, it's Luke 21, 25 through 36 to be precise. It'll be on the screens, or as I said, you can just listen and receive. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, you see these things happening. You know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We pray this morning, Father, that you would come and be among us. We pray as the church has prayed for so long, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come Holy Spirit, come as holy forgiveness and free us. Come as holy love and enfold us. Come as holy power and enable us. Come as holy life and dwell within us. Convict us, convert us, and consecrate us until we are wholly yours for your using. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So we're in Advent, as we have said now multiple times. I think you get that picture. And many of you are uh, familiar enough with Mosaic and with the church calendar or uh, the seasons that we find ourselves in. And you know what Advent is. You know what the answer of what is Advent. You could make a stab at it at least. Uh, at minimum, you would probably be able to say at this point in time that it is a preparatory season of the celebratory season of Christmas. This moment, this time that we kind of take and, and give ourselves to the waiting and the expectation of what is to come. Or maybe you know it as its literal meaning. We talk about things that since the advent of social media is a popular uh, cultural phrase at the moment, which means the coming or the arrival of something notable or someone And so for us, if you would bear with me just to remind all of us, Advent is this season that marks the coming of a notable person and the expectation of his coming. It's four weeks that's meant for us to serve as a way for us to prepare our hearts and our minds and our souls for the 12 celebratory days of Christmas. Fun, 
fact that you can win maybe in trivial pursuit or something at some point in time. The 12 days of Christmas are meant to be from Christmas to January 6th, not leading up to Christmas. Um, oftentimes we get that confused. I've always got that confused. And that's because culturally, right, like we've already dove headlong into Christmas, or at least many of us have. Some of you in this room maybe are Advent purists, or maybe you're just a curmudgeon and a Grinch, and you are like, I won't celebrate Christmas at all. Or maybe you're a hardcore December 1st type of person, or you celebrate the 12 days before Christmas and that's it. But the church calendar that we are given, Advent is this season where we prepare our hearts and our minds. And then we begin the Christmas season on December 24th, on Christmas Eve. And then the 12 days of Christmas go until Epiphany, which is January 6th. Epiphany is the day we celebrate or mark the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. This is represented uh, with the wise men or the magi, as you might call them. So if you want to be a good Christian, and you, you can be an okay Christian and go ahead and start decorating. But you can save yourself by making sure that your wise men are at least not in the manger, okay? If you have to decorate early, put them off to the side a little bit. If you've got some yard decorations, take six spaces, keep them socially distanced, you know? And, and keep your wise men off, and, and don't let them come to the manger at least until January 6th. But many of you will have already tore all your Christmas decorations down by that point, and we will have long forgotten about Christmas. Now, if you're like me, as I said, we've already entered into the Christmas season. The second we started driving home from Thanksgiving, the first thing we busted out was the Christmas playlist. I'm a hardcore, no Christmas music until the Friday after Thanksgiving, and then it's pretty much the only thing I will listen to until December 26th, and then I'll pretty much stop, because by that point I'm burnt out on it, and I really want to listen to my other music, but like, I just won't let myself, even when I get into the, like, December 20s, right? And so we started to lean into this, and I love Christmas. We've already got our tree up, we're going to watch all the Christmas movies between now and Christmas, Christmas Day. Uh, and we're going to enjoy it, and it's so fun to watch it through young eyes and to lean into these things that are oftentimes commercial, they're oftentimes uh, cultural, right? And this is what I want to say, as Christians, like, lean into it. If somebody tells you uh, season's greetings, happy holidays, you don't have to preach a sermon at them. Just say happy holidays back, season's greetings, merry Xmas. Like, we don't need to get worked up about these things. Like, it is okay for us to participate in these things. To enjoy these things, even though we know, and there's a part of me deep inside that every Christmas Advent season, I look at Anna and I'm like, there's part of me that really wants to be that old curmudgeon, and, and not in like a, a curmudgeon-y kind of way, but in an earnest kind of way of following the Lord that says like, what if we did just wait? What if we really gave ourselves to the four weeks of Advent? What if we uh, held off on the tree lights and the poinsettias? What if we like held off on the cheery Christmas tunes and really for four weeks in a similar way we would with Lent of like giving ourselves to preparing our hearts and our minds for what is coming. But here's the thing, like I always give up on that dream partially because you'd be at such odds with like the streams that we're swimming in, the Christmas parties, the holiday parties, the office parties, the school parties, if you have kids, the, the jammy day, like it's all coming and you can't stop it. And that's okay. And I actually, as I wrestle with it, I have found a position that I think maybe is better. Both and, of course, as all good things in my heart oftentimes are. But I think there's this way 
where we get to have this moment or this alternative way of like leaning into these cultural things that we're going to be swimming in. And we're a part of them, and that's good. Go to the parties. Have fun. Like, enjoy, wear the Christmas sweater on December 11th. Like, you don't have to wait until the end of Advent to do that. But what if instead of sort of just giving yourself completely over to that, what if we offered an alternative? We don't have to be the church, and many older, uh, very high liturgical is the term for this, that like they follow the calendar, like they will hold off on all Christmas even like notions until that December 24th. There's, there's no mention of Christmas. They are hardcore Advent people. And I respect that and I get it. And then there are others that like don't even care about Advent and they're just like headlong into it and like why wait? Give it to me now. There's no tension. But what if we found ourselves in an alternative place where we're participating in the seasonal joys and the seasonal rhythms that are just natural to be a part of and we have some fun with them. But we hold deep in our souls this this treasure of Advent. Like in us, in our bones, we're holding fast to this waiting and this longing of knowing for all of the fun that we're having, it's a shallow representation of what the true joy that can be found in Christ will give us. What if in our shopping, in our revelry, we held deep within us this, this thing that we know that maybe everything's not quite right and this will not fulfill us, and yet we can find ourselves partaking and participating in it. Pastor Ashley Matthews is in Atlanta, Georgia, and she preached an Advent sermon, and she once described this tension as the way you sing rounds in music, Right? I was just laughing with uh, our Ashley this morning and saying, like, I I'm that person, like, you, you want me to sing in a group. You don't want me to sing in a microphone. I'm not going to sing loud. Like, like, I'm not going to sing badly enough that you turn around and think, like, dear God, that guy needs to stop. So I would be good in a round, like, lots of voices, lots of things going together. But in a round, right, like, we know what we're talking about, where you kind of stagger your parts. And in some sense, I think that's what we get to do with Advent as we hold this tension and we let it grow within us and we are pregnant with expectation while this like celebratory season goes on and we know there's a tension there and we let it grow and we hold to our lane, we hold to our part. And here's what I like about this analogy and why I'm taking so much time to go through this is because I don't think this is just for Advent season, I think this is for the life of a believer. There's something practical here that we can kind of grasp a hold of what it means to live as a believer in the wanting and waiting world around us. That as we participate, when you're in a round, when it starts, like you don't need to contribute it. You can jump out of your part and get into their part and the song continues. But when you do it right, it actually is really cool. You know, like I remember doing, I was in chorus, like, and I can remember singing songs like this and like, I can't even think of any off the top of my head now at the moment because that's what my brain does when I try to do these things. But, like, there are these cool songs where you really do it and everybody's got their part and it. Like, when you do it right and it comes together, it can sound really cool. And I think that that's what we as a church, and I don't mean mosaic, I mean we as the people of God, the bride of Christ, when we lean into these seasons and we hold on to these tensions, we actually get the chance to do that. We don't have to tell everyone else to stop singing. We don't have to tell everyone else to change the song or to do something different. 
We can stay in our lane, we can stay in our round and in our part, and we can actually contribute something more and deeper and fuller to what's happening around us. And I think if we do that, in a season like Advent, if we can practice that, that while we're at the cocktail party, while we're at the school uh, Christmas performance, watching your kids sing jingle bells or whatever it may be, if we can hold that idea and let it grow and fester and ferment deep in our bones, that that's a practice and a rhythm for the rest of the year that we as believers are doing where we participate and we're joining in on, and yet simultaneously we know that there is something deeper and truer that we're longing for and waiting for. We participate in it, and when we do that, when the people of God are patiently fermenting in them this hope that God has given us and placed in our bones, I think we actually help what's going on around us be more rich, more real as we contribute to it. There's no more, in my opinion, definitive season than Advent for the life of a believer. Like all of our life as a believer really genuinely is an Advent season. And I say that to, to quote Fleming Rutledge in her book uh, called Advent. Uh, she's an Angl or Episcopalian priest from New York. She's incredible. You need to read her and listen to her if you haven't. She calls Advent the want and future coming of Jesus Christ. And that's why it is our life. It is this celebration, this rootedness in hope where we recognize that all that we have, that, that there, things will get better, that things are not lost, that things will be redeemed, because there has been a coming, an Advent season is part of recognizing that coming and marking that coming, but it is also recognizing that there will be another coming, and we live in between those two comings, those two arrivals, the once and future. It, it was a one-time event, that the thing that set into motion and yet we know there's a future coming. And in Advent season, we hold those two things in tension. And that is the life of tension of a believer. We recognize the hope that we have as we live into this season. It, it, it allows us to open our eyes to what the Lord is wanting to do in and around us. I think uh, our gospel lesson from this morning in Luke... Uh, when you initially read it, it'll help us, or as we talk about it, it'll help us understand what I'm talking about in this tension, because this doesn't feel like a Christmas or holiday passage. When you open with, there will be signs of the sun and the moon and the earth, and the nations will be in anguish and perplexity. Chaos, disorder, turmoil. This doesn't feel like the holidays, or maybe it does, you know? Like, maybe you're like, wait, like this, there's something true about this. We feel it deep in our bones. A passage like this doesn't come off as uh, necessarily initially hopeful, and yet it is full of hope. I'm not sure that at this point I need to convince any of you any further to celebrate Advent. I think most of us in this room have some buy-in to it. Uh, hopefully this morning I've done my part, but indulge me just a little bit longer. And as we think about this passage and as we start to talk about it, 
And as we talk about this hope that it's giving us and how it's almost an anti but completely Christmas passage, I want to say, like, Advent is beautiful in, in the holding off on it as someone, I'm saying this as someone that loves Christmas. Like, I really, really, really love Christmas. I always have. I bust out the Santa hats, like, I got the, the sweaters. Like, I, I'm stupid nostalgic, like, just everything I do, I want to do things the same way, and I get, like, a, a high off of, like, eating biscuits and gravy on a Christmas morning, because that's what my family's always done, and, like, I can't change it, it'll make me super sad. I, I, like, I just, I embrace the kind of, like, cliche-ness, like, give it to me. Like, I want, like, a nostalgia overload pretty much most of the time. Like, I love it. And I know that there are people out there that don't love Christmas. And sometimes I want to pray for them. Sometimes I want to ask them who hurt them. But if I'm really honest, like, I get why they wouldn't sometimes. And I think Advent can help those poor souls, you know? No, I mean, I mean it, though. Like, I think Advent, the, the, another example of what I'm talking about is in this moment, there is a small annoyance or discomfort in leaning into this cultural kind of like everything is grand, everything is fine, everything is wonderful. We rush right into it. And sometimes you find yourself and you're like, wait a minute, like six weeks ago, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic, like inflation's out of control, like we're worried about money and savings and all of these things because like where are we going to get the money? Gas and groceries are going like through the roof. COVID, political problems, social problems, geopolitical problems, like pain, suffering, injustice in the court systems. Like, we know these things, and, and we're kind of in it. And then it's like, wait, you just want me to kind of like turn all that off for six weeks and talk about a wonderful life? You want me to just throw it all out the window, watch the movies, sing the songs, pretend like I'm not hurting? Pretend like I'm not in pain? Pretend like that suffering didn't happen this year? Like, when you juxtapose it like that, of course you have a problem with Christmas. Pretend like Christmas hasn't been a disappointment because of, like, who wasn't there year after year, even though you know they're not going to show up, you let yourself hope that they'll show up, and they don't. The fights, the lack of what you thought was supposed to be perfect and present. We pretend like it's also storybook. Like, there'll just be miracles happening everywhere on the street. Frank Sinatra will just sing our way through the next four weeks, like, in the background. And just, we know, that's not reality. There's an offness to trying to lean into Christmas when you just ignore the pain and the suffering of the world. And I think Advent, when observed rightly, lets us celebrate Christmas as it's meant to be. When you acknowledge that pain, you acknowledge the death, you acknowledge the last 18 months and the fact that it, this holiday season was not supposed to be like this. Everybody was supposed to get to be there. COVID was supposed to be over. It was only supposed to last four weeks and then four months. And now I'm like, is it going to be four years? Like, we recognize that the world's not right. Death is real. 
And when we lean into these Advent passages and we find hope in the chaos, in the turmoil, in the tumult of life, I think Advent lets Christmas be what it's supposed to be. And I'm talking even about the commercial Buddy the Elf parts of Christmas. When you are honest about the depths and the pains and the suffering, when you grieve like the Lord longs for us to grieve, when you grieve for your brothers and sisters, what I think the beautiful thing is is it lets you celebrate the way that we're also supposed to celebrate. I've said this many times before, but as Christians, no one should know better how to grieve and to celebrate. And if you truly grieve, you can truly celebrate. And I think if you hold back from either, you can't do the other. And that's what Advent Christmas Connection is inviting us into. And in a passage like ours, I think we can see what it means to have hope and joy that is rooted in what feels like the exact opposite of hope and joy. Let's go back and think about what's happening in Luke here for just a moment. So Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and they're at the temple. This is in Holy Week, where we are here in Luke 21. So just a few days prior, Jesus has ridden in on a donkey. And as much as we want to talk about the lowly state of this, what this really is symbolizing, Jesus riding in on a donkey is symbolizing Jesus' royalty. This is a royal notion that we're receiving in this moment, and it's one of peace. Jesus is not coming in on a war horse. He's coming in as king and ruler, bringing peace to a place. And he's coming in on a lowly borrowed donkey, also that part too. But there's, there's two things that are happening here that are bringing attention to it. So he's in Jerusalem, and his disciples are getting it. And they're going, yeah, 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 you're the king, you're bringing peace, you're going to establish us, and we're going to do this. And he's in the temple teaching He's overturned the money tables. And the disciples are looking around, kind of acknowledging, and they look at the temple as they're kind of leaving. And Jesus is there with his people, and he's been teaching, and he's been doing his thing. And they look around, and they say, Jesus, isn't this pretty incredible? This is Luke 21.5. They look, and, and they comment to Jesus. And instead of Jesus being like, yeah, these stones are pretty impressive, he's like, you see all this? Look around. All this beauty all this grandeur, all of this that we've longed for, it's all coming down. As a disciple, you naturally be like, Jesus, like, I wasn't, I didn't need an end time sermon. I was just commenting on how nice the furniture was, right? So think about this temple. We were just in the Minor Prophets, and we talked about the weeping of the temple and how it wasn't what it was supposed to be, and it was a sad a replica of what once was. And the people had lost their worship. But they finish it, and this sad little temple exists for a minute. And then it goes along. And then there's this point in time where one of the Greek emperors comes, and he sets up his own statues, and it gets uh, used as a way of worship. Advent, Christmas, also Hanukkah time. So I'll give you a little Hanukkah story here. So in the mid-100s B.C., the Jewish people have had enough, and they revolt against the emperor, and they take back the temple, and they say, it will no longer be a place of worship. This is called the Maccabean Revolt. They go in. There's a miracle. They're burning the menorah in the middle of the temple. It magically, miraculously would be the better word, lasts, even though they did not have enough oil in the revolt. It lasts for eight days. They see it as the presence of God with them. They continue to fight, and they actually do the Greek emperors out of the temple 
And then a few years later, Herod comes, and he actually spends a ton of money, and the Jewish temple becomes one of the ancient wonders of the world, 20 B.C., 20 A.D., I forget which one it is, one of those two. So he comes, and the temple, it, it truly is majestic. It's ginormous. Herod spends a ton of money on it. He rebuilds it, and the Jews are worshiping. And in some sense, they think this is a sign that all things are going to be made right. So it is natural that as he's talking about these things and he's teaching on what it's going to be like, that the disciples would look at Jesus and go, yeah, like it's coming back to what it was supposed to be. Like the time is near, right? And Jesus looks at him and he says, see all of this? All these things, this beauty, this grandeur, not one stone will be left on top of each other. It'll, it's all going to be tore down. And then they ask this question, Luke 21, 7. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? So to help us understand the context of our passage, we have to understand that they asked two questions. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign? And now, Jesus goes on this uh, long, not long rant, uh, an in-depth teaching that is weird and kind of uh, all over the place. At least it feels that way at times. He talks about all sorts of things, about how that nations will war against nation, that there will be uprisings, that kingdoms will fall, that there will be earthquakes, famine, and pestilence fearful events, and everybody will be kind of hand-wringing. They will be perplexed. They will be full of anxiety. They will think and they will assume that all of the world is coming to an end. And he even says in our passage, truly I tell you, the ge this generation will certainly not pass until all the things I have said have happened. All of this anguish, all of this perplexity, all of this like world-ending, cosmic, cataclysmic events, they will all take place before any of this generation passes away. Quick biblical aside, when you hear the word generation in Hebrew, a good round number to think about is 40 years. When they talk about generation, a Hebrew way saying 40 years. It'll be 40 years. That's kind of lifespan. That's the time they spent wandering in the desert. 40 has an important role to play in the Hebrew mind. So now, when you think about this, all the world-ending, cosmic, cataclysmic, stones being turned in on each other, and this one phrase about the Son of Man coming on a cloud, we're left with this question in Luke. Like, we hear their two questions, and we raise them one. Okay, but did this actually happen? Because I can actually see the sun shining off of the building behind us. The world did not come to an end. Everything was not completely upended. At least not in that way. Like, society and humanity has moved on. And so we ask, well... Did all the cosmos collapse in on itself? Were the skies full of signs and wonders? Did all the nations rage? Did famine sweep the earth? Well, no. At least not in the way that we kind of read this. 
Did the Son of Man come on a cloud? Not in the way that we oftentimes want to interpret it because we just talked about we're still waiting and living between these two poles, the once and the future coming of Christ. And so we're left asking, well, what, what happened? You guys know I love C.S. Lewis. And I didn't uh, affirm this, but I heard someone else say this on this passage. That this section, and, and you see this mirrored in Matthew 24 as well. Or very similar, and we're going to kind of use these two in just a moment. But C.S. Lewis says that this is the one passage in the Bible that embarrasses him. Because like, he just can't reconcile that Jesus said this would all happen before this generation passed away. And yet, it doesn't. At least not in the way we interpret it. So this is a controversial passage, and though it does not feel particularly uh, Adventy and Christmassy, I think it, it needs addressing if we're going to preach on it. So briefly I will say this. There are three ways this passage in Luke 21 and Matthew 24, I think it's also in Mark 14 maybe, somewhere in Mark as well. Anybody? Okay, we'll keep going. Somewhere in Mark as well. The Synoptic Gospels, they all share this. What the church or biblical scholars and interpreters have attempted to do, the two main ways they try to interpret this, is one, that Jesus, in talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that they asked about, right? When will this happen? What was he just talking about? That all the stones would be turned in on top of each other. So they're asking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and then they're asking about the signs. In Matthew 24, it looks a little bit different, because they ask about when will be the sign. They ask, when will this happen, meaning the destruction of Jerusalem, and then they ask, what will be the sign of your return or your coming? So they're asking about the end of days and the destruction of Jerusalem because they see it as one. Now this is good Hebrew apocalyptic literature and a good device that they use in their prophecies, but we'll ignore that for a second. So they're doing their thing, they're asking this question, and now we're asking. And so the way people want to interpret this is they want to say that Jesus just kind of on his own is going back and forth and he's talking about two different events. And that he's using one event to kind of like foreshadow or lean into a second event that's like kind of further down the road. And they have ground to stand on in this. Because this is some way that Hebrew literature will work. And they will use something kind of in the foreground to help explain something that is going to happen here. I'll go ahead and explain this now because I see your faces seem confused on this. Okay, so think about when you're hiking I recently went hiking with Grant Francis, and I like to te tease him a lot that he'll say something's 45 minutes away when really what he means is it's about four and a half hours away. Uh, and that's because I love Grant and I want to tease him. But also, too, there's this natural way that things happen. If you climb up on a crest and you can see two peaks or two hills, if you've ever been to, like, the Colorado mountains, like, I remember going skiing, and, like, you're up on one peak and you can kind of see, like, oh, we're going to go to that one and then that one. They seem really close together when you're at the top looking at, like, if you're on point one, point two and point three seem really close together. But then when you get down, you're like, wait a minute. That's like way over there. And it's going to take us like all day to get there. You can't actually get everywhere you think you can get. But when you're up high looking at it, you're like, oh, yeah, I can get there really quickly. When, you, when you're hiking, it, this has happened to me before, too, when Grant has said, I'm like, we're already two hours past what he said we're going to be. We get up on a little hill, and he's like, we're just going to that, that little ridge right there. And I'm like, okay. We're going to end up three hours longer. And then we go down the hill, and then you start climbing, and you're like, wait, this is an all-day hike, Grant. You said it would be the morning. Okay, so you see it because this is what happens. This is what apocalyptic literature is doing. They're taking an event in the foreground, 
And they're kind of saying, like, see this. And what they're helping is they're using it to help you understand something that's going on in the background. But then, and so it seems then like it's one event or that they're really, really close together. But the reality of it is, is if you were in a helicopter and you flew up over it and you looked down, you would realize that there's a huge expanse between them. So they have good grounds for this because this is happening in apocalyptic literature all the time. What seems like two events that are really close together, when you look off into the horizon, mountains aren't your thing, buildings, whatever it might be. Think about You understand how depth perception works and you can be tricked of thinking something is much closer than it actually is. They do this. They're, they're talking about one event and the other at the same time. So people think that that's what Jesus is doing, and that he just gives no clues, and he's just sort of going back and forth. The other thing that people think is that human Jesus was just wrong. They, they think it's a, an example of humanity. They think it's an example of, like, just the way that when he says that only the Father knows the day and the time, that no one knows, and this was Jesus just kind of like, he thought, oh, the fall of Jerusalem is going to be the end of the world, and that it didn't happen, and that he was wrong. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project offers a third reading, and I don't know if I've ever disagreed with Tim Mackey. If I've only disagreed with C.S. Lewis once, maybe I've disagreed with Tim Mackey once as well, but I don't remember it, so we'll just say one time. So Tim Mackey offers this, and this makes sense to me. He says, maybe, instead of assuming that Jesus was wrong or that he's just switching back and forth, maybe you're not a first century Jew steeped in apocalyptic and prophetic literature, Hebrew literature, and you just don't understand what you're reading. And I was like, I kind of like that, because that makes sense to me. He says that we're trying to make this passage say something that it's not. So what he wants to do is he wants to say this son of man language, and the sun and the moons and the stars, and this like language of the end of times and the end of days, what it actually is, is it's a reference back to Daniel 7 and 9 and 10 and some more, and Isaiah. Specifically, Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34. So in our passage, I'm moving fast now, I hope you're with me, but I don't want to take too long here. Our passage, it starts with, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. If you flip to Matthew 24, instead of saying there will be signs, they say what those signs are. And they say, the sun, it says in Matthew's gospel, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then in parentheses, if you have a, a Bible that gives you footnotes, it tells you this is from Isaiah 13 and 34. If you go flip over to Isaiah 13 and 34, what you learn is that Isaiah is talking about the destruction of Babylon that will actually happen. And why is he using this language? Because he's a poet. And he's using poetic language. Because when Babylon ended, it was the world power. We've talked about this. Like They thought that the world had ended. The same thing's going to happen when Rome is destroyed. In the 300s, right? Like, they think the world is coming to an end. Everyone's like, this is, this is it. The one thing that we've kind of known as stable and true. Like, it's all coming to an end. The world is over. It feels that way to them. And if you're talking about it, and we do the same thing. We talk about things like, going back, I'll, I'll give Grant some grace here. Like, I'll say, that was the longest hike ever. It was not the longest hike ever of all time. It's not possible, right? Like, we were gone four hours. It wasn't the longest hike ever. When Phineas goes fishing, he catches a fish that's this big, and it's really only this big, right? But, like, by the time he gets home, it's this big. Like, we exaggerate things. We do this. Why wouldn't the biblical authors do the same thing in a moment of grandeur and excitement? Especially in pain and suffering. Our generation has gotten this totally wrong. We say all the time, that literally killed me. 
Well, if it literally killed you, you would not literally be using your words in this moment. But we say it, and it's colloquial, and, and we understand what we're all saying. What we mean is that it was really hard. It was real, like I suffered through that. It was painful. They're doing the same thing. So what Jesus, I think, is actually trying to do in Luke and in Matthew and in this moment, I think he's speaking to the fall of Jerusalem. Did Jerusalem fall in the next 40 years? Well, if we probably 37, 38 years from when Jesus is talking. We have archaeological evidence that shows that no stone is any longer stacked on top of each other. And these are big, huge stones. It took them years. Rome comes, sacks Jerusalem in 70 AD, and they literally tear the temple down to its foundation. They get rid of it all. So it happened. So it leaves us with this question about the Son of Man. What is this Son of Man idea? This comes out of Daniel. Now, what it says is that you will see the Son of Man arriving, and it's talking about him assuming his place in the kingdom. In Daniel, the Son of Man arriving on a cloud is not coming down, but he's going up. The Son of Man is, there's these four beasts, there's all this stuff. Go watch the Bible Project video on the Son of Man on YouTube. They can explain it in five minutes way better than I can in 30 seconds. So we'll just leave that for another day. But what it is, there's all these beasts, there's all this thing in Daniel's vision at the end of Daniel. And what he sees is all these beasts, like there's one getting bigger and bigger. And he's saying is that we're all giving ourselves over to uh, humanity and we're acting like animals and not humans. And we're using power and greed to... To, to, to put each other into pain into all these different places and there will be one that will come one day that will destroy all this but first he must suffer the son of man is Jesus's favorite phrase to give himself as the messiah and the king so the son of man must suffer and then he will be exalted on a cloud and he will be raised to the right hand of the father where the son of man will rule over all of creation and humanity was Jesus punished crucified and did in that time frame, did he see himself raised up and put at the right hand of the Father? We confess it every Sunday that we think so. So I think this all actually happened in the time that Jesus predicted it to happen. And I think it gives us a better insight. Because then not only do we not have to hand ring and worry about, oh, well, what we developed in the mid-19th century, which is that this is actually, or the mid-20th century, that this is actually the, the rapture and Jesus is going to come out of the clouds and, like, we're all going to come up and... Then, like, but, but before that, there's going to be all this war and all this fighting. Jesus is saying this, Jerusalem has become Babylon. And he's using that language from Isaiah. When, in Luke 21, when he's referencing there will be signs and the suns and stars, what they know is that the end of the world is coming, all that you know that is good. There will be tumult, there will be turmoil, there will be ripping apart and a sundering of the skies. Everything that you think you know and imagine is coming to an end, and it's happening. And here's the hope. And this is the Advent message, that when that is happening, you are not supposed to give yourself over to fear and to anxiety, for that is what the nations will do. They will be perplexed. They will be in anguish. You are called, as a follower of Jesus, to lift up your head, because your redemption is at hand. Now, this mountain analogy, let's go with it again for just one more second, and then I'm going to wrap this thing up. Combat land this plane. What I think you're seeing in this, and the reason Jesus is doing this, and the reason that the Hebrew prophets were doing this thing, is what happens is that they're introducing you to the human condition. What you see in Babylon, Jerusalem has become. Wars, pestilence, famine, infighting, kings ruling, powers coming to rise that are marginalizing and, and abusing people. It sounds like the first hundred years after Jesus, it sounds like the last hundred years, and there are hundred-year segments in between where this has been true. This is the cycle of humanity, right? 
that people abuse their power. They rise, they fall. And what we're given is this picture that Jesus is calling us to be faithful to him. Take this analogy one step further in the hope of Advent that I think we find is that in this rising, this fall, this chaos, this turmoil, if it be true of political, I think it can be true of us individually and circumstantially. It can be true of the church. And it can be true of our own belief and crisis of faith in these moments where we doubt and question everything. When things seem to be being ripped apart and things seem to be asunder, when all seems like chaos and loss, when it is turmoil and things are shaking and the earth seems to be quaking and it seems like the world is ending, the great hope of Advent and of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is in that moment that the kingdom of God is rushing in. That it's in that moment and it's in that space when it seems like everything is over and no way can we move forward. It is in that moment that God's presence is more near and more real to you. Obviously, God is near to us in the good and the celebratory, but for some reason, Scripture wants to remind us again and again that He is near to us in our trouble, in our heartache, in our brokenness. And I think too often we are like the nations and we give ourselves to fear and to hand-wringing, we give ourselves to perplexity and to anxiety and to anguish. When it feels like nothing is going to go right, we assume that we have been abandoned and that the world is over. But though the earth give way. God is our strength and our help. When all seems to be in, all seems to be over, all seems to be done, the kingdom of God is rushing in, and it is giving to us something more real and more firm. It's giving us something solid in a world full of vapor. And we need not fear because we know God is our refuge. I think this is true in our circumstances, in our world. We look around and we feel this right now in the last eight, like this feels just chaotic. And it's like the Lord is near to us. He's nearer than you can think or imagine. When it feels like you're in the moment of a crisis of faith, when you're walking with someone through a moment of crisis of faith, deconstruction is a very in vogue word. And, and we might think we have to write blog articles that tell people about how they're deconstructing all wrongly and that we need to walk them through it and, and there's people that are in a moment of faith and they're going I don't know what's going to happen the world feels like it's ending because this thing has happened and it's all out of order and we feel this pressure like well, I'm a Christian I'm a pastor whatever it is and like I got to walk them through it I got to have all the answers and I think what I have to do is just tell them to look up for your redemption is at hand in the moments where it feels all out of control and unmanageable, when the marriage seems completely lost and you tell yourself there is no way this can ever get better, look up, for your redemption is at hand. The Lord is rushing in and he's meeting you because the presence of God gives to us a reality that is more real than the reality in front of us. And that is Advent hope. That we would hold on to that reality in the quaking, in the trembling, in the chaos, in the disorder, God is not less real, but he is more real in those moments. And so look up. It's okay. Whatever's being ripped apart and asundered, if it is a faith 
or if it's an idea or a dream that is capable of being crushed and ripped apart, then I doubt it was ever a faith that God intended you to have. What God is in the business of doing, what the prophets are in the business of telling us that God likes to do, is that he likes to take our notions and our things that can be deconstructed, and he says that that was too small for me to fit into anyways. And what he's inviting us into is to find his magnitudus, right? Like his, his bigness, his grandeur, and he wants us to find something about God that is unshakable in the midst of a shakable earth. And that's what Advent hope is for. It is designed to give us eyes to see when everything seems so uncertain and unseeable. So look up and see that your redemption is near. As the band comes back up, we're going to celebrate communion as we do every Sunday. I want to invite you guys to come. And and this is what we are being invited into, this, this grasping, this holding on to in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of chaos. And in this Advent season, in this Christmas season, let us draw near. Whatever the chaos or the turmoil in your life is, know that in that moment there is nearer to you something that is more real than you can think or imagine. No need to give ourselves over to anxiety and to hand-wringing. Be near, be present, continue to call upon the Lord, and in his goodness and his mercy, he will be near to you. As we prepare our hearts and our minds for communion, I'll invite you to stand, and we will confess together our sins to Almighty God. Then we're going to pray, and I'm going to invite you guys to come and receive the elements. Begin by saying this with me. Gracious and compassionate Father, slow to anger and rich in love, we confess that we have sinned against you both by what we have inflicted and what we have neglected. Our Our sins sins are more than we can bear, and we cannot hide our brokenness from you. As we come in humility, show us the path of repentance. Lord, you are faithful and just to forgive us. For your name's sake, be merciful to us. By the blood of your Son, Jesus, Wash us and make us clean. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us and make us new. For the sake of your kingdom. Amen. God has rescued us from the power of darkness and transformed us and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And in our forgiveness and in our coming to the table, it is our right and our duty and our joy always and everywhere to give thanks to the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. On the night before Christ was crucified, he took the bread and the celebration of the Passover and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you, so take and eat. He took the cup that represented the blood of the sacrifices poured out for the forgiveness of sin and the preservation on that night of Passover. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you, so take and drink. By his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. And as our great priest, high priest, he ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory that we might come with confidence before the throne of grace. And so I invite you, family, to come and to receive the elements.
to receive the bread and the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. And as you do so, do so in the remembrance of Jesus Christ. And as we do so, we confess the great mystery of faith that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.